There we go. Are we there? All right. Wonderful. Again, we're glad you're here this morning. Welcome to Pilgrim Church. Uh, I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Edding to come join me this morning on the platform here. And uh, I'll do a little introduction about how Q&A works. And uh, then I'll share a little, have Ed say something about who he is, and then we'll jump in this morning. Um, so this is Q&A Sunday. We do this roughly every three or four months. And we either do it with myself and an in-house guest or someone who has been here uh, before as an outside guest, and that's Ed here from SOMA, Counseling and Family Services. And um, to give you a little heads up, in your newsletter, there's a little sheet of paper. You can physically write down a question, and you can pass that to the end of the pew. Uh, and the ushers, I think, or Heather, will be, uh, she, uh, the amazing Heather will be on it, okay? Uh, so just make sure that they can see it, and they'll walk it to the back. Or you can text in a question, and this, the number's on the screen right now um, that you can text in, and that'll get to the back. And Charmaine and Anne are sort of moderating from the back, and they'll put the questions on the screen. Um, we are, I th- believe these questions go online, so I don't necessarily have to read all of them out loud each time. I have been doing that in the past. Um, and then Ed or I will just jump in. We may both share on a question, or uh, we'll defer. He's, since he's a guest today, we, we want to mine the depths of his wisdom and intelligence. I was going to say I'm beauty, but I stopped there. So, <laughs> no. anyway, uh, so yeah, we want to do that. So just a few pointers, though. Uh, so this is important to get. Uh, number one, if you're asking a super technical question, that unless we have amazing memorization skills in the particular field you're asking, there's no way we could answer. We will def- punt on those questions. Um, so again, asking like specific can you tell me about the nature of which Greek verb is used in, in John 4.24? Well, I'd have to go look that up. Like, I don't have that memorized. So those kind of questions don't really fit in a live venue like this. Um, but all other kinds of questions, fair game. Anything is open. Uh, and we reserve the right, of course, not to answer, to punt, or to defer. Um, the other thing to note is that we're doing this live. And so sometimes when you're speaking off the cuff, you may want to reserve the right to retract or restate later. So we do reserve that right. Uh, so don't sit there and quote or video and say, I've got a aha moment on, you know, Pastor Shell this morning. And, you know, no, no. Um, so be gracious in that regard. We want to have a real conversation and not be afraid because we're trying to play gotcha with somebody. Now, most churches we've done this in, that's not been a problem. But every once in a while, something comes up. I'm like, yeah, I need to restate that differently. Um, and uh, what else was the other thing to say? Yeah, um, you need to ask questions. Like, that's how this works this morning. We'll go until we're either out of questions or out of time. And so uh, with that, I want to pray, and then I'll have uh, uh, Ed share a little about who he is, and then we'll jump right in, okay? Sound good? Good. Okay, all right. Yeah, just leave us on. We'll... we'll Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Lord, thank you for your presence here in this house. And uh, these Sundays where we move from our normal proclamation teaching time to more of a conversation, um, be with us. We pray that uh, there would be light that comes forth from your word and from our life experiences together in this room. And Lord, that we can not be afraid to engage with things. And even if we may not have the answers, we know that We can defer to you and lean into mystery where we need to. And where you're clear, help us to have some clarity and um, really engage and show that the church is people. It's Jesus and people. Most basic definition is Jesus and people trying to live our lives centered around something different, your love revealed on the cross. We pray be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Tell us about yourself a little bit. Thanks, (laughs) Joe. 
yeah, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me back. Um, I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to come back and see some familiar faces. Um, and uh, so a little bit about, about me. Um, this is not my first career. I think this is my third career now. Um, but I did, you know, for those of you who had multiple careers or jobs, you know that's never really just about, you know, seeking one career and doing that thing. It's usually transition from the next. Um, so before this, I used to be a pastor. Uh, and then before that, I was a high school teacher. And before even that, I was a lifeguard, but that didn't last very long. So um, that was when I was a kid. A lot of fun, though. Great job. Um, but uh, so, so I've had a lot of just different kind of life experiences. Um, I've lived most of my life in Vancouver. I was born and raised in Canada. Uh, I was born in Ontario, moved progressively west. As, and then I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, anybody else here from Saskatchewan? One. Hello. I thought I recognized a... You get the prize. Where from? North Battleford. I have been there. Yes. Um, and, and so, uh, so yeah. So, so, and then we, we moved out here when I was 12, and then I went through high school, university, and, and seminary here. Uh, so, so, and I've also lived in, in, in Pasadena, California, um, which is supposed to be a suburb of L.A., but, you know, it's not so much anymore. Um, it's now just part of L.A., uh, and then I've lived another four years in Hong Kong when I was a teacher, and I taught at an international school there. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, and uh, I guess a question usually everybody kind of asks me is, well, so you've done so many things, you've lived a lot of different lives, so why are you doing what you're doing now? And I think the, the really easy answer is simply that uh, when I was a pastor, and even when I was a teacher, I started seeing that there were so many things that I just did not feel comfortable working with. Um, are there any teachers here? I know Maureen is one. Okay, well, a lot of teachers. Okay, great. So, so you, you, you have these kids in your, in your class, and they come to you and they tell you, so this happened. And then all of a sudden you think, this is not my lesson plan. I, I don't know what to do now. Or uh, this is not in the textbook. I don't know what to do. And usually you try and listen and do some you know, minor things. Um, and so that... That feeling of helplessness was something I carried all the way through from being a teacher into the pastorate. And as a pastor, as Shell can probably attest, there's lots of things that you feel very unqualified to do. Um, you know, people come to you with, with life stories that are just full of trauma. Um, people come to you with, with marriages that are breaking apart. People come with, um, you know, sometimes people come with, with you know, I, I've seen an angel the other day and it, was, it told me to go kill myself. Something like that. Those are very serious moments at which you sit there and think, boy, I really enjoyed learning Greek and Hebrew. I really enjoyed learning a lot about Christian history and such and such. But there was nothing at all about this. And I had those moments too as a pastor. And um, it really was that feeling of not sure what to do next that led me into, well, maybe I should explore. Um, maybe a door that's opening for me. What also helped was my own personal therapy. I think I've shared before. Uh, I may or may not have shared before. Uh, you may not remember. But uh, I have been through my own personal therapy. I consider it um, a gift. And you should never, and people are going to ask me maybe, like, what, what should I look for in a good counselor? You should never trust a counselor who's never sat where you're sitting. So if, you've never, if, if the counselor's never sat in the place of being counseled or having been in a place of seeking help, you should never trust them because they won't know they won't know what it's like to be in the place where you're sitting. Um, so, so those all kind of led me to where I am. Um, but I can tell you that even though I sought a sense of helpfulness, 
the truth is, there are many moments that I just do not know what to say next. I'm supposed to be an expert on this. Am I not supposed to know everything about human functioning? And the answer is, I know a lot from a textbook, but I don't know a lot about the people I sit with. And so I'm always learning. And part of being respectful and part of being inviting and inviting people to talk about their lives means that many times I shouldn't be an expert on you and your suffering. You and your suffering is unique to who you are. And so sometimes that leads me into silence because I just do not know what to say when I'm, I'm, I'm encountering sometimes people's stories that are so rich and deep and full of pain. So that's a little about me. Yeah, thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, there's lots of things that come up right there. Probably going to come up in some questions. That's great. All right. Uh, do we have any questions? I'm kind of waiting for one on the screen. We have a lot. Ooh, wonderful. Okay. Here we go. Well, maybe. It's okay. I'm going to read it, this one, and I won't message it for all of them. But if God is relational and we learn much of who God is through ourselves, peers, and community, why is there need to attend church? <laughs> Woo! That's a loaded one. Ed, you start with oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to. You got to it first. Uh, hmm. Let me think now. I think uh, I would say that part of attending church. Um, is an embodiment of what we believe in. It's an embodiment of, you know, what we practice or what we think. So, you know, as, as Shell kind of alluded to, um, talking about the Spirit gives gifts to everybody and so on, um, that comes from a passage, I think, in 1 Corinthians? And, and yeah, it's, the, the address is fuzzy now. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but the whole point is that I think when we follow with behaviors, sometimes the heart will also follow. So sometimes we come to church and we're like, oh, I don't really feel it. I don't want to get anything out of this. And we're full of complaints, full of critiques, um, you know, full of that was not done right, you know, kind of thing, that kind of feeling. But sometimes in order to um, develop the kind of heart that is open to relationship, sometimes the body needs to go first, even when you don't feel like it, even and especially when you don't feel like it. Anything to add? Yeah, that's, I, I affirm all that. I would add, uh, just from a perspective of the work of the Spirit, when Christians gather intentionally around the name of Jesus, like what we do when we gather on Sundays, which Christians have been doing since the resurrection all the way back 2,000-some years ago, um, <clears throat> Jesus is hosting this gathering. Um, and there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit does something of a special revelation in the gathering of the believing community and questioners. And so... In one sense, the Spirit is at work in the world everywhere, and we want to tend to Christ's presence, and we've been talking a lot about that. But when we gather, there's something unique that he promises to do with the gifts of the Spirit in operation in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, we, we read about this, 12, 13, and 14. Um, Jesus calls us to gather together. The early church, there was a pattern established. We're actually going to talk some about this next week here at Pilgrim, talking about the gathering in our neighborhoods. Um, but yeah, there's... And a need to attend church, I, I, would, I would flip the question a little bit and say it is a, it is a privilege to gather. Um, I, I think of brothers and sisters that, that are being persecuted because they desire so much that fellowship that we take for granted in sort of post-Christendom North America and post-Christendom Europe. Uh, but in the global church that's growing in all over Asia, East Asia, West Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America, South America... Um, it is a privilege. And so, yeah, there's power in that. But there's, oh, I could 
do a whole sermon on that. I'll, I'll save it, though. You will, I think. Yeah. Not today. <laughs> Let's, what's next? How can one reconcile the enjoyment of worldly things, music, culture, people, or anything increasing susceptibility, increasing susceptibility to worldly temptations or tendencies with a life lived in the spirit? Um, I think I get what they're trying to say there. You're saying that how can we enjoy the being embodied in the world and yet deal with not letting it fall into sin? Is that, is that what's going on with that question? It's like a mashup. Um, Ed, do you want to lead off again? <laughs> oh, man. I'm reading, so you have time to come up oh, with the yeah. brilliant things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think um, one thing to consider is that we, we sometimes delineate, uh, make too firm boundary between profane and sacred. Um, so we say, that's worldly, that's wrong, that's, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Um, you know, and, and, and I was reading the, uh, the bulletin, I guess the, the newsletter, um, and it, it put in very good language uh, something about money. And I think it's worth even mentioning just about money, the very worldliness of money, is that money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And so um, so it is with music and culture and, and, and people or anything. Um, I think um, in terms of reconciling enjoyment of those things, there's just tremendous variety there's just tremendous different ways, uh, many different ways of, of people reaching into God. Um, it doesn't always mean they are, so we need to be aware. We need to, you know, use our minds and, and, and use you know, everything that we've been given to discern the spirits. Um, but um, so when we're, when we're talking about a life lived in the spirit, absolutely. But I think the further I go and press into God, the more I realize that the world is a lot more... The, the doors to the world are, are, are far more open than they used to be. I'm allowed now to enjoy a lot more because I feel more secure in God's grasp on me than I think on my grasp on attending to what is holy and only taking in what I think is holy. You know, it, I think, um, I have to say, um, growing up in Vancouver, um, it, it's, it, it's more of an Asian city now than it used to be, um, but... Uh, it, it leads to, I think, a very narrow way of being because even as diverse as we are, maybe on an, in an Asian spectrum, um, it's, it's easy to lose sight of the tremendous variety of people in the world and the tremendous uh, variety of different ways of, of reaching and touching God. And I think we need to be aware of how um, people in different cultures, different places, um, the music of different peoples all around the world, different languages... This is all, this all can be ways of, of reaching into and pressing into God. Um, so with that, I'll just maybe we make the show. I just, I agree. I think the, one of the things that really spoke to me, what you were saying too, is the stronger you are or the more established you are in your faith, the more Jesus-like you have been formed inside and in your community and in your church, in your home church, however you gather, um, I think you become more attuned to the Holy Spirit's um, freedom and also in your own life what you need to back away from where it might not be sin for someone else. It might be sin for you in this stage of life. Um, but yeah, it's good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Let's do the next one. Is Jesus' mom Mary a sinner just like any one of us? How is Jesus sinless when he is born of the Virgin Mary? Ooh, this is like a technical theological question uh, that the church has wrestled with forever. 
I'll lead off and Ed will fix. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, from, from a, I think from a first three centuries and a Protestant viewpoint, we would say Mary needed the redemption of Jesus as much as any other human being. Now, within the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition, there's a belief in her sinlessness. Uh, but Protestants, and I think the first couple centuries, you'd really, you would wrestle with that. And so I would say, from my perspective, that, she, that Mary needed that as much as... Now, that throws into some doctrines that came later on in theology that felt like sin passed on literally genetically in that sense. Um, and so they needed to invent a doctrine of an immaculate conception. So I, Protestants generally would reject that idea, saying, well, sin is not just about DNA. It's, there's a lot of... Uh, it is woven throughout all. Um, but in Jesus, this sense of how he is born, how is Jesus sinless when he's born of the Virgin Mary is the sense of, so God the Holy Spirit is, we're told, and this is a scandal and a mystery we lean into, um, that he's born of the Virgin Mary and that the Holy Spirit is involved in his conception. Now there's, to tease that out, there's theologians that have wrestled with that and skeptics and believers. Um, Part of it is we lean into that by faith, that in Jesus he lived a sinless life. He was not born with original sin in that sense, that, that sort of, that certain view of original sin. But not all Christians even believe that. I'm really rabbit trailing here. Sorry. Let me clarify. I get to a sharp point. So we affirm by faith that Jesus was born and conceived by the Holy Spirit um, and that God and the Spirit is the, the father or the genitor of Jesus. Um, how that all works out technically, we don't know. Uh, theologians have tried, but I think it's something where we lean into it by faith. When the Bible tells us that he knew no sin, uh, that we, we affirm that, um, and that because of that, he could die in the place of all humanity. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, it's a really technical question with lots of layers. Make it better. Brother so, sounds good. I'm just going to say sounds good. <laughs> okay, fine. Next. <laughs> Uh, that's a great, do some more research on that in terms of how, like if you dig into that, there's a lot of history in the church wrestling with, well, how is sin actually passed down? And then what does that really, how does that relate to Jesus? But generally speaking, Protestants would say Jesus is sinless, but we're not going to debate the technicality of how does that work out with Mary in particular. Um, we go as far as we can with scripture and we leave it at that. The Bible tells us that Christians, as well as some prominent Jews will go to heaven when they die. Uh, what do you feel happens to Jews not following Christ? Was there an advantage to being a Jew beyond receiving God's blessing on earth? What do you feel happens to Jews not following Christ? Was there an advantage to being a Jew beyond receiving God's blessing on earth? So immediately, I'll lead out, uh, but really do for it. Jump jump in on this. Uh, (laughs) I'm good. So Paul talks about this, and, and the author of Hebrews talks about this the idea that um, he says, and Paul is Jewish, uh, not all New Testament, like Luke might have been Syrian, like, so the, even New Testament, we see the church immediately is, is Jewish and Palestinian or whatever we would call that, uh, people from the Middle East. Um, and so Paul says, if I could die on behalf of my nation, I would do that. Uh, that's, that indicates to me that he's saying that Everyone needs to come to a, a receiving of Jesus Christ one way or the other. Um, and so I would say if you're not following Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile or, or, or the Old Testament or New Testament would say Greek, meaning all of us who are not Jewish or Jew, um, we all need to be in Christ. Now, having said that, what does that mean? People then debate, well, what is your opportunity to receive Christ? 
And that's another question that this one's not asking, so I'm not going to answer it. Uh, so I would say, if you're, not, if you're not in Jesus, the traditional answer of the church is that we don't know your eternal destiny, and it would be foolish for us to assume someone's in heaven or hell, but our job as believers is to share Jesus as if, as if we don't know, but we, we have great good news we want to share. And then the church debates on, so what, is, what, is, what does it mean to follow Christ, and do you get opportunities right at death? Do you get opportunities after death? Do you, how, how many opportunities do you have to follow Christ? And that's where this question is more complex uh, than a simply straightforward yes or no. Can you be saved pre-Christ? There's a sense some church tradition teaches that on the, on the Holy Saturday, the Saturday between Jesus' death on the cross on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday, that Jesus actually went into Hades, the afterworld, and preached to the dead, which would have meant the patriarchs and the prophets and all of the followers of ancient Israel and all humans of all time, that he went into the place of Sheol, into the place of that, and preached on Holy Saturday. And those that were open to receive, received and are saved. That's one way to get around this question. There's other ones too, but this is, this is a very good question. Ed, what do you know about this? Does this come up in counseling in a lot? This no. One? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more theology. I, I was in my, coming in here today, I was like, okay, okay, thinking about like, things, psychological topics might come up. And, oh, oh, it's all. It's everything. Okay, all right. Okay, hang, cool. hang on. All right, good. Well, um, you know, uh, um, you alluded to the harrowing of hell. Um, and um, actually, uh, for me, there's only... There's only one verse in the Bible in Second Peter, I think, that, that alludes to the tradition you're talking about. Oh, it's a stretch for sure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so there's not a lot of scriptural data. There's not a lot of, like, you know, attestations in scripture to this tradition. Um, I find it interesting, but I don't know. And so I think um, maybe the second part of the question is a, a better one. Was there an advantage to being a Jew beyond receiving blessings, God's blessing on earth? Um, I don't know. Um, but I do know that the Jewish people went through a lot of trouble. It feels a bit like God's blessing, you know, actually brought them a lot more trouble than necessarily blessing. They had a, you had, they had a good couple of kings. They had David, and they had good times in Solomon. But before that, and, and, and even after that, it was really tumultuous for them. So sometimes we need to look more closely at the way the Bible represents the history of the Jewish people um, instead of assuming that everything was blessing for them. Their kingdom was torn apart as soon as Solomon died. Um, and, and, and so... You know, and, and the people scattered everywhere and during the exiles that happened. And so, you know, um, they were God's people. And yet, they, and they did receive God's blessing when they followed God. But I think inst- in, instructively for us, um, um, th- what, what we see through their history is that when they put other gods before God and they were led astray as a nation, mostly through their kings and sometimes through their priests, um, that... Other things would happen. I think one of the remarkable things about Israel in general um, is that it is a nation that shouldn't exist. Not, 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 not the modern-day incarnation of Israel. I mean, I'm talking about ancient Israel. Because um, that strip of land, Palestine, um, is essentially the, 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 the freeway between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And so whenever they would go back and forth, they would just trample over that land and basically take over who was there and kill the crops and kill the people and everything like that. In Israel, God says, well, this is the promised land here on the freeway, <laughs> you know, between these warring nations. Up north, you got the Persians and the, and the Babylonians, and down south, you got the Egyptians and so on. And, and basically, these people are going to come trampling across your land all the time. And God sets them up there. Now, that is remarkable because usually you want to find a quiet place 
out of the way, you know, like an island maybe. Utah. Utah. <laughs> Utah, it's a very quiet place, I guess. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, but, but, but that's part of God's blessing. You know, it's, 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 it's fascinating for me to think about that because this is a place that shouldn't exist. These are people who should have been slaves forever, and yet they're not. So I think um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see how the life of Israel, the life of the Jewish people, had more to do with the revelation of God's sustenance of a certain people group and a light for all nations. And that was a promise given to Abram, who was the father of Israel. Yeah, really good, really good. I, in New Testament, it says that we are grafted into that history of Israel as believers, which brings up a... Yeah. Every one of these questions is like a 30, 40-minute conversation. <laughs> we got, we're going to keep yeah, going. To dig deep here. Yeah, we're going to keep going. How oh. can I overcome sin in my Christian life? Oh, okay. Ooh, a little more psychology, huh? Uh, okay. Uh, so so um, I guess maybe I'll, I'll answer this as a psychologist, which is kind of more my field now. Um, but but um, so, so a lot of times people will come and, and they'll say, I'm, I'm ashamed of habits I have. I'm ashamed of the things I do. How can I stop this? Please help me stop. Um, and I think maybe one of the things I start with is to say, uh, um, help me understand why you think this is sinful or what makes this sin. Well, it says quite clearly in Scripture this is sin. Okay, uh, and, 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 and how do you read this? How do you understand that this is bad? Now, I'm a person who is very aware of people's traditions, so I never try and trample on someone's theological outlook. I always try and understand a bit more of, of why this feels so sinful to you. Uh, or to people who come in. Um, how you overcome this? Well, there's different ways. Um, you know, psychologists always talk about um, uh, emotions, affect, uh, behavior, uh, and cognition or thinking. And so, in order to really change our habits or change ourselves, all three of those usually need to be addressed. Now, people often come thinking that I can get one, one counseling session and it's all done. I got rid of that habit, I'm all good. Um, but I think overcoming um, is maybe a, a language that I use less. I think there are sinful habits maybe we can leave behind. But I want people to always uh, leave with a sense of, uh, I am a sinful person in need of grace, in, a, in internal need of grace of God. That's a much more complex vision of who we are before God. It's not just saying, like, if I can get rid of the sin in my life, Jesus is going to totally accept me. No, no, no. Jesus totally accepts you now. But for love of God, for love of Jesus, don't you want to try and, you know, access part of who Jesus, you know, wants you to be? <laughs> um, and so, so overcoming, less important to me than kind of sitting in that place and saying, boy, boy, I really wish I could stop looking at pornography. But I just can't. But you know what? I know that even if I can't stop looking at that stuff, I know that Jesus loves me so deeply. And it's to him that I offer this, this sinful, awful self. And it's him that accepts that sinful, awful self. Yeah, I think that's being rooted and grounded in God's love is, is how you begin to move in that direction of changing behaviors and then replacing them with things that are affirming and life-giving. But, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to add much to that. So, uh, Why should anyone go to hell? Are people truly evil? Is it not just the chemical reactions in our brain and nature which define what we do? 
This does not seem fully in our control. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a complex I'm question. I'm for this one. You guys are smashing too many questions together. You need to separate these out. Holy cow. Okay. I'm going to just do a teaser answer with that. Right now, we know in terms of the nature of what it means to material, that's a, this view is a reductionist naturalism that says it's just chemical reactions in our brain, which most of the science right now says there's so many other things that affect how those reactions are formed. So this question is sort of like a, you know, ah, whatever will be, will be, it's a fatalistic question. It's saying as if it's predetermined, when in fact, the question doesn't stand up to the science now. So I will just say the premise is flawed. Um, you're not simply that. So, so that part of the question, I would say, uh, in that piece of it is simply bad science. Um, uh, I mean, I love you, but it's wrong. Um, so <laughs> the, the other part I would say, uh, in fact, there's, I sent out an email to the church yesterday that has links to some articles related specifically to this kind of thing, that our DNA is not determinative as we had been, as we taught in the ways that we were taught, or our pop culture or pop atheists say it is. In fact, it isn't at all. Um, some good stuff. If you don't get my email, uh, let me know. I'll get your email address and I'll already send it to you. Um, I don't want to talk about the first one. Should anyone go to hell? Are people truly evil? Hmm. The church has answered this question in a thousand different ways. Some churches believe that hell is the same place as heaven. This is actually a very ancient view of some of the early church fathers. Uh, to put it, one father said it this way, and I can't remember if it was Irenaeus. I'd have to look it up, but this idea that the flames of hell are the same flames of God's love. The difference is whether or not you're choosing to be in relationship with the creator or not. And so if I say I receive the love of God, I experience in the life to come, the afterlife, uh, the presence of God as a warming, wonderful, passionate, life-giving thing. But if I am in rejection against God, I experience those same flames as hell. But the difference isn't like, don't open door number three and in, in, imagine we're in heaven and you know there's three doors on the platform. Door number one is wonderful, door number two is wonderful, but door number three is like the dark abyss with the flames and gnashing of teeth. It's not like it's a separate place per se. In, now the image hyperbole in scripture uses some of that, but the early church wrestled with this and said, well, it might actually be the same thing. To me, that's an interesting, interesting thing to wrestle with. So, and then some would say that you, some people may have, and again, most evangelicals don't believe this, but some do, that who knows in the afterlife? God is gracious. He's merciful. I'm reading through Jeremiah. I preach through it. And he, he tells in one chapter in Jeremiah, he's just like, Israel, you're do- I'm done with you. But then there's this little but because of my love and character, I'm actually going to override my own Torah, my own law, and to bring you back. I mean... So that would be one more moderate to slightly progressive view on that. Um, A conservative answer would be, well, if you sin against an eternal being who has given you life and liberty and happiness uh, and has given you everything, when you sin against an eternal being, you're creating an eternal sin. Uh, And so in that sense, and that's a very hard conservative on the other side, a way to think about this is, well, if I sin against something that is... There's a point at which that, yeah, I don't deserve eternal life. John Stott, famous evangelical conservative, taught that there's a real hell, but, it, but annihilation, that, that you cease no more, you cease to exist, that there may be punishment for a season, and then when the fullness of eternity happens, whatever that looks like, then the, the, the dead are no more, that they're extinguished, because Scripture has some language like that. He taught at Regent, very... Orthodox evangelical, but in that regard, many didn't like what he said, but he taught, it's called annihilationism. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, fix it, man. Fix it. <laughs> I think uh, I'm going to leave uh, uh, contemplations on hell to the oh, shell. Thank you. No, no, Ryan, uh, not intended there. Um, buy me coffee. I've got more. <laughs> but uh, um, so, so the, the, I, I would agree with Sheldon saying that the, the science behind saying our chemical reactions in our brain, nature, define what we do, um, I think we confuse cause and effect. Uh, we think that, oh, because I know what a neurotransmitter is, and I know that if I take this medication, it increases my serotonin, that means must, that must mean that I'm going to be happy. That's not necessarily true. Um, so uh, um, the reason why I say I was thinking about this question this morning is because I had a feeling it might come up. Um, but we often think that our medications are, are, are specifically targeted at, at depression or anxiety or whatever, but, but for those of you who have a pharmacology background, which maybe none of us do, but, but if you have a pharmacology background or a physiology background, if you're a medical doctor or a nurse, something like that, you know medications don't work like that. Um, and, and it's odd because we think, like, well, doesn't this just touch serotonin? Like, doesn't it, no, no, no. It works for different, for different people. So you may take a serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitor, um, and it might have a different effect on you than if you take a drug that does the same thing, but it's branded a different way or has a slightly different molecular structure. Now... We are not just the chemical reactions in our brain and nature um, because um, our, our brains are intimately connected with our bodies, for one. So it's not just what happens up here that matters. It's all of this that matters. Um, the second thing is that um, we, we, we maybe, um, you know, if you were to take a slice of, say, a, a serial killer's brain and take a slice of my brain, because I am not a serial killer, I, I'm telling you that. Um, Would you confess that if you were? I, <laughs> I'm just sorry, maybe, maybe not here. Uh, no, I am not a serial killer. I can show you that. Um, and, and, and you would look at them under the microscope, and you would find exactly the same thing. There is no difference in our structures. Um, you know, there, is, there would be no difference in maybe the, the, the amount of neurochemicals. I can tell you that when people uh, commit crimes and they're put on medications in prisons and whatnot, those medications are mostly there to sedate them. They're put on uh, antipsychotics or whatever because they're mostly there to keep them sleeping because sleepy people commit less crimes than people who are fully awake. <laughs> so, and are less dangerous. So that's generally speaking why they're there. Um, and, and so the whole, the whole premise underlying drugs in general, psychotropic drugs especially, is, is, is that um, most doctors, and I, I, you know, if you're a doctor, you can always disagree with me, most doctors... Um, prescribe them because they're more helpful than placebo. And that's kind of it. They, they don't quite have time to listen to everybody that comes into their office. So they will say, um, here's some medication, here's a prescription, and you should seek counseling. <laughs> because they will have time to, to listen and to help you unwind what's really going on here. But medication's there maybe to keep you from bottoming out, to keep you from feeling even worse. And it may not help depending on the medication. Is that yeah, oh, that's okay. great. Okay. That's good stuff. Um, I th yeah, there's more on that question, but we'll, okay. we'll keep moving sure. for sure. I've been a Christian for a long time, but I wonder why I don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit more in my life as I read the Bible every day and seek forgiveness. I've been a Christian for a long time, but I wonder why I don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit more in my life as I read my Bible and every day seek forgiveness. I think that actually is a, is a great question to expand and to say um, there's more than encountering the Holy Spirit in terms of scripture and, and sort of the prayers for forgiveness and mercy. Those are important things that form us, the habits form us, inhabit, and we inhabit that space more to where we can be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Um, 
but in each person's case, I'd, I'd want to know more. Like I'd want to know more about what do you mean when you say the power of the Holy Spirit? How are you defining the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, and I guess that would be the question I would have is, is what experience are you looking for? And is that experience something that maybe it's happening in a different way and you haven't identified or aren't able to identify it because you the range of ways you're defining it may be too narrow. Like you may need to expand how you encounter the work of the spirit. Um, I'll be quite frank. you normally occasionally I'll sense like a word or impression from God in my life, but most of my everyday doesn't go like that. Most of it's just walking through what we call the, the plotting work of, of God every day, putting one foot in front of the other um, and being formed in my character, where I experience the power of the Holy Spirit more is in what's shaping in my character differently. How am I reacting differently? Um, how am I becoming more loving? To me, those are things I define the daily encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit, um, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's more I Great. can say. Oh. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it looks like it sounds good, yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we could say more, but we'll, we'll move on with that one. How can I be supportive and helpful to someone suffering in clinical depression? What is helpful and what is not? Oh, Dr. Ed, this has got your name all over it. <laughs> Mostly because my name is really short, and if you mix up the first two words, the first letters of depression, it spells Ed. But, uh, so, um, <laughs> Come on now. So, so uh, depression. Um, and, and I think... Uh, Maybe what's helpful, uh, it depends on the severity. So if someone is going through the point of um, can't get out of bed, um, you know, and, and that happens, uh, and is cutting off you know, from everything, work, school, friends, family, everything, um, what you can do is simply try and help them stay alive. Uh, which is just to say, cook a meal for them. You don't have to talk with them. You can just say, here's some food, eat it if you want, you know. Um, you know, uh, did you did you shower today? Did you brush your teeth? You know, go wash your face. So, so those very basic things are usually things that people like. Um, well, if you work in a hospital, you would do, which is to simply say, keep their ADLs, activities of daily living, going. Just that kind of stuff. This is important. Um, that's very basic level. Um, a little bit more than that. If someone is going through depression and you're not quite sure what to say, what to do, how to say it. Um, resist the temptation to tell them that like this is going to help, that's going to help, um, and 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 say like oh you need to be medication or you need to try this kind of therapy or that kind of therapy, uh, you need to eat vegan. I don't know, um, you know. So so maybe resist advice giving. Um, you know, if if these people are depressed, they can Google it for themselves and look it up um, and, and do whatever they want. The best thing you can do is just be a friend. Just listen. Now, that's really, really hard because I think most people, especially in our culture, love to solve problems, and depression looks like a problem. Um, and so we want to make people feel happy and like themselves again. But depression can also be an opportunity for change. So if you are so keen to get rid of that person's unhappiness, you may be robbing them of the opportunity to change. Now, of course, that's balanced with the need to keep them safe. So if they're at a point of killing themselves or of, of something like that, or if they're at a point where they, they, their mind can't be trusted anymore, because sometimes people will get so depressed that they will start to hear voices and see things, um, that's something else. That's to be you know, taken to the hospital. Um, and that's something you as a friend need to be always aware of. So, so 
Particularly speaking, um, when you want to keep someone safe as a friend, watch out for things like um, them giving you precious things. Oh, I've been keeping my collection of bobby pins. You know, it's precious to me. I don't know. <laughs> and, and these were handed down from my great-grandmother from the old country. I, I don't know. I'm just making it up. But I want you to have them. What? what? Why me? Well, giving away gifts is a person's way of saying goodbye. Or if a person is, is you know, if, you're, if they have a blog and they say, I write a blog sometimes and I want you to read it. And you read it and it's about like saying goodbye and how much have they failed everybody. You need to be aware that they may be in danger. And you need to ask direct questions. Are you thinking about hurting yourself? And then they may say yes, may say no. And they may even say no and then go ahead and try and kill themselves anyway. Because... That's the, that's the limit of, of what we can do sometimes. So being ready to be grown up about it and, and, and try and put aside our fear for a moment and say, like, if I don't try and do something, my friend may try and kill themselves is a really important thing to be aware of. Now, statistics tell us that probably one or more of us has had someone close to them um, kill themselves um, in this room. And you're probably thinking about yourself, like, I should have done more, I should have done more, I should have done more. You know, the honest answer is, you probably couldn't have known. Unless they came up to you and said, I'm going to kill myself, and here's, I'm going to do it on a date and time. There's nothing you could have done. So living with that guilt is really difficult for a lot of people. Um, and I think that's why suicide is one of those things that actually hurts people around you more than it does necessarily yourself. Michelle? I'm going to leave it at that, especially okay. that last, that's wonderful, that really when you take your own life, that's the pain of the community is, right. uh, their, your issue may be quote-unquote over, but then it, yeah, it expands that circle. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, How do you wrestle with your faith with God? Instinctively, I think it makes more sense to do it without him. <clears throat> Who is the referent in the second? No. <laughs> uh, how do you wrestle with your faith with God? Instinctively, I think it makes more sense to do it without him. Well, I would say each of us is unique and different in terms of what comes instinctively. Um, but the person writing the question to do life without God, um, how do, so this, I'm going to reverse it. So the person is making a statement. I think it makes sense to do life without God. The question is, what about our faith with God? Um, I would say for me, I wrestle with my faith with God in terms of I encountered God first in the church, uh, people who cared, who made a difference in my life, and I think that opened me up to hearing uh, the message of the gospel, the message of that there is a God who created, who sustains, who cares for me. I think when I encounter, for me, my faith with God, whenever I hear great music, or for some people maybe watching a great hockey game, Um, When I get enraptured into that thing, when I cross over into that experience, or if I see an art piece that moves me, I encounter something that doesn't fit within a simple material worldview, that it's just the basic stuff, like something else is going on. And it's something else beyond my senses because other people encounter these things as well. Um, For me, my faith came from that experiential side and from philosophy. Um, When I wrestle with what really is... um, those things draw me and cause me to come back and the encounter with the Holy Spirit in beauty, art, and play. Those things draw me in. And 
abstract philosophy, but that's how I'm wired. So I think for each person, when you come to faith, God uses those things that um, sort of appeal to you, and there's a sense that God is chasing us. And sometimes when we say, well, I think life is easier without God, um, you may be able to, to shut that off and, and walk down that path. Um, the question is, are you excluding then other data that doesn't fit in your worldview anymore in order to walk down that sort of hard atheist path? And, and you are, you know, that would be the argument of, of Christianity, that you're excluding uh, revelation knowledge, you're excluding the history of Jesus, you're excluding other things of uh, arty, art, beauty, play, other things that are out there that go beyond simply reducing things to basic naturalism. Um, that was kind of geek answer, but uh, there's, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. comes to your mind? Why, where uh, is your faith at? Well, I think I wrestle with my faith with God, um, with my image of him, primarily. And that's something I do a lot with my clients, too, is just, um, I see 80% of my clients are Christians, and um, inevitably, who we think God is always comes up. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people come in with an image of an angry God or a God who doesn't care. Um, I think, personally, if I wrestle with an image of God that I have of him, is that is he, is he an uninterested, kind of distant being who sits in his throne and kind of like, you know, uh, touch the world once and let's set in motion and kind of like, let's see what happens, you know? That's what he feels like sometimes, especially because I, we live in a very hyper-connected age with information at fingertips, and I'm, I live a news junkie, and so what that means is sometimes you see all the awful things that are happening in the world all the time, and you think, God, why don't you do something? Like, that's terrible. Why didn't you do... Oh, you let that happen, too? Like, ooh. And every time, it feels like I'm heaping blame on God. You know, do something, do something, do something. And so... That's how I wrestle with my faith in God. It's not so much with God himself, but it's my image of him, I have to say. And I know it's not correct. It's my only interpretation of him. And that needs changing. And it is being changed, I think. Yeah, and I think stories, too, of people <clears throat> that have started out as sort of hard, I live my life without God, uh, sort of a hard-edged atheism. When some of those folks come to faith, I think those stories might be ones whoever asked might want to lean into and research. People that started out from a, I was raised in an atheist home. I have, was an atheist, but then I became a person of faith. And those but then stories, I think, are fascinating because they're not all the same. There's different things that, that plug into that. Uh, so if you Google, like, ex-atheists or whatever, find uh, there is people that share their stories of that transition um, into faith. And I, and I find that fascinating. And deconversion stories are out there, too, um, you know. Uh, and, and so you can see that as well, how people end up leaving faith. And a lot of times... Even atheists, the God that many atheists reject, I also reject. I wouldn't worship whatever their picture of God's like. When they start defining what, getting back to that image of God, I'm like, well, if that's what God is, no thanks, I'm out too. Uh, and I'm a Christian pastor, so for me, I, I see God fully revealed as best as I can this side of the life to come in Jesus. And so for me, wrestling with my faith also means Jesus. Uh, I always go back to Jesus, his life, his teachings. Um, it's the, some of the historical arguments for that, but even that, it's more about the living Christ for me. Um, and, and I haven't found anything as beautiful and as wise as I see in some of the basic things that he taught and then his death. Uh, no other God dies. God doesn't die, but the Christian God dies. So much of a scandal, Muslims say, no, that didn't really happen and still want to claim Jesus. Um, 
it's funny, you'll see even in some Hindu context that Jesus is brought into the pantheon. Uh, you'll see within, uh, you know, Mormonism, which is a, a sort of a twisted, takes Christian language, but is a different religion, tries to co-opt Jesus. You've got even atheists who are arguing for the ethics of Christianity based on the teaching. The atheist is trying to co-opt Jesus. So for me, that Jesus thing also keeps drawing me back. If the atheists want to co-opt Jesus and deny his historicity or at least grab his teachings, if the Muslims want Jesus, if the Mormons want Jesus, if the Hindus want Jesus, even some Buddhists say I'm a Christian Buddhist want Jesus, uh, why not just settle for Jesus alone, huh? Like, if everyone's trying to co-opt Jesus, that tells me something else about the Spirit of God at work out there. And so maybe you're trying to push away, but God is drawing you. And if you're here this morning asking that question, I would say maybe the Holy Spirit right now in this room, in this place, is saying to you, open your eyes, expand. You're you're too closed off. Your box is too small. Expand it. Um, So I just invite you to maybe lovingly consider that. Non-coercion, just consider it. Uh, let's do one more. Are we still awake? Normally we end the service now uh, with a song. You want to do one more? Can we do one more? Is this the, what, is this the best final question? Charmaine's given me the, this is what I, okay. <laughs> you don't like the questions? Charmaine and then Anne. <laughs> okay. Thanks to those folks. So, well, just a second. How important is it is to accept Jesus? What does it mean and what difference does it make? You're a guest. Lead off on this one. What do you, what do you oh, think? Uh, well, um, I think the question is too short. It's accept Jesus as Lord and Savior is usually kind of what we want to talk about. Um, and so that, that's kind of what it means. Um, Lord of what? Well, Lord of your life, of our lives, of the universe. Um, accept him, you know, and, uh, um, and Lord and Savior and Savior from um, from, from the life we used to lead and maybe even then the gateway into the life that's next. So uh, I guess what I would say is what does it mean? Um, that's what it means to me or how I understand it. Uh, what difference does it make? That one, um, I have to say that the difference it makes is in terms of where we think all of this is going. Um, for what I understand it to mean is that um, we believe in a, a close to history, uh, to human history at least, in the way we understand it on this earth. Um, and during that time, um, we see the narrative of God being written, the story of God being written out in the, in the lives that we have. And so the difference it makes, maybe, is, is knowing that everything is kind of held within this framework um, of a story. And then we are caught up in that same story. It's not that, um, you know, we accept Jesus and we're left on our own kind of thing. But then all of a sudden, we become part of this people that God is gathering. And that is God is, is using as a foretaste of the kingdom that's to come. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. And that makes all the difference. Um, it's not just about personal piety. Uh, it's not just about, uh, you know, quitting your bad habits and taking on good new ones. A lot of it just means simply saying, um, I don't have what it takes to make it on my own. Now, people who say they do, well, I treat them in my office. They're called narcissists. And... Um, <laughs> And that may be you this morning. <laughs> but, I mean, if, if, if you don't need Jesus, then, then you don't need him. 
you know, that's, that's, that's up to you. But it's like Shell said before about hell, and he alluded to this, and I kind of, like, where my mind to, went to with that was that um, C.S. Lewis said that hell is a door that's closed from the inside. Um, basically, and a simple way of saying it is that hell is getting what you want. If you really don't want anything to do with Jesus and with God, then okay. He's not that kind of person. He's not that kind of God. He doesn't say, you've got to have me. You know, he's like, okay, you don't want me, then you don't want me. It's pretty simple. Um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but that's kind of difference for me. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. Mm. Um, I think for me, I, 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 when I see the core of Christianity, it's God is love. Uh, Trinity is a relationship from all eternity. And um, to accept Jesus for me, yes, involves freedom from brokenness and dehumanizing and not, and not getting my identity out of my tribe or my politics or my education or my bank account or my geographic location. I get my core identity out of God's love. And when we receive Christ, part of that is saying my center is going to be his love. And that changes how I do my dating, my marriage, my other relationships. It changes how I approach other people. I am not at the center or another being is not at the center, but he is at the center. And his love is at the center. And that changes then how I should relate to everyone. And again, it's a process. We don't get there. It's, it's a lifelong journey. But I think the basic Christian question of life is, are you becoming more loving? And that's not wishy-washy. That's not being a doormat. That's assertive. That's knowing it's being a peacemaker. It's entering into tough things. But it's also this sense of, am I, am I humanizing others um, regardless of what, what else is going on in their life? regardless of what they've done or not done, regardless of where they've came from. And so this sense of, of being rooted in the love of God in Jesus Christ is that we have a different center. And now admittedly, Christians in the church have often failed. They've said the words, but it's not been how they've actually lived. Admittedly, the church needs to be in a posture of repentance, I think, in post-Christian Canada and North America, post-Christendom, a posture of repentance, a posture of repentance towards a lot of different people. Um, but at the core, the core, when it's there, it makes all the difference in how we relate as humans. My tribe isn't a bunch of uh, Mennonite Christians. My tribe isn't, uh, you know, my, my ethnicity. My tribe isn't where I live. It's not my social economic status. My, my people in Jesus becomes those who put love at their center and let that change them. And that's why the church is a global thing and why it scares the heck out of empires and tyrants and why they either try to co-opt it to get us off track or they try to crush it. In the States, there's more co-opting. In other places, there's more crushing. But we, those draw me again and again. Well, there's more questions. Boy, we went a little bit longer, but I first, wish I would have said what you said there. Oh, well, hey, hey. Can we give it up to Ed, uh, Dr. Ed for sharing this morning, for being our guest? Thank you. When I invite someone to do this for the first time, they really don't know fully what they're getting. So uh, thank you for being a willing participant this morning. Uh, and then also to Charmaine and Anne who are helping moderate questions back there. Thank you, Charmaine and Anne. Give that up for them, please. And then if you would be, please stand with us this morning. Um, we're going to end with a song and... Uh, I'll invite the worship team to come on up, and uh, then we'll say a prayer and leave. I think it would be good to sing together before we go. Uh, that's also a very Christian thing. We should get a question about music and worship sometime. Um, yes.